welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks and I'm ACOM's Head of Marketing and Communications in Europe and India. This episode is the recording of an ACOM event that took place at the 2022 Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham. The title of the panel was Placemaking, Pride and Productivity, How Places Can Unlock Leveling Up. Featuring ACOM's Jonathan Moore and guests, it was chaired by Sebastian Payne, Whitehall editor of the Financial Times. My right, we have Michael Gove, the former Leveling Up Secretary, who I think will have some views on places and has written a lot about them before. On the far end here, we have Councillor Ali Brown from Stoke on Trent City Council. We have Ben Derbyshire on the far end here, um, who is president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. We have Jonathan uh, Moore, who is from ACOM. And finally, we have Ike Iger from Policy Exchange. Now, the way we're going to run this is um, I'm going to ask all the panelists to make brief opening statements, just a couple of minutes to give us a sense of what their views on fundraising, what placement should be and what government should be achieving for. We'll have a bit of a discussion here throw it out to questions. We all wrapped up in the hour and I'm going to ask this now because I'm going to ask this again when we come to questions. Questions, not statements, please, so we can get as much from the panel as possible. So I'm going to bring our kicking off with Councillor Ali Brown. Placemaking, what is it to you? Thank you. So um, I'm Abby Brown. I'm leader of Stoke on Trent City Council. Um, I'm one of a very small number of female Conservative city leaders, which gives me a platform to make outlandish statements like saying Stoke on Trent is the litmus test for levelling up nationally. Um, and it's great to see so many people here to hear about Stoke-on-Trent as well, I have to say, um, this morning. Stoke-on-Trent, it's a polycentric city. Um, and one of the things that has been really important to me in terms of our narrative is how you define that. So we're one of the very few places nationally that is still defined by what we make. Um, potteries, the potteries, that's what we're called. Um, and people like me are obsessed with turning over their crockery to see where it was made. We are six towns, but in one city. And part of my challenge over the last seven years um, has been how you can bring that together in a cohesive agenda. And I think very mindful as well about how it can be quite corrosive sometimes if you get that narrative wrong. So there's a need to balance there between your wider entity, Stoke-on-Trent is a city of about a quarter of a million people, versus what it's like to have six unique um, other places within that and of course, nobody knows your place better than you do as a, a local council leader, but scale is equally important. And that's why I think the role of local government is incredibly important around places and productivity in particular. So I would say that small is beautiful sometimes within the case of Stoke-on-Trent, but also you need an element of scale to deliver across these things. And where does the debate around MCAs fit into that um, with regard to unitary authorities such as um, my own? Very strong focus on place and placemaking for us as um, as a city. Um, I've been very fortunate over the last seven years to have caught the attention of successive secretaries of state, worked indeed closely with Michael um, over recent months, um, and very much needing to develop an understanding around how you fit and flex your narrative as a place to fit that of government, but also, may I say, how I flexed and fitted our narrative to influence government itself as well. Because I think it's important to see placemaking as being very wide. And um, one of the things in particular that I'm incredibly proud of under Michael's tenure is to be able to sign one of the first informal deals with Homes England um, in the country. 
very much driving around moving away from just a housing agenda. We've been very successful as a place in terms of housing, but actually how that fits a wider place making um, ecology, really. And that width very much informed our prospectus, um, really around the things that we saw were important to lead to a more successful city. And one of those out of the four was indeed health and productivity, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And finally, I guess I would say in terms of, of levelling up, whether we call it levelling up or something else, if we want to see the full extent of the ability of places like Stoke-on-Trent to achieve their productivity potential, then we need to improve things. We need to ensure that a child who's born today in Stoke-on-Trent is able to live the, as long a life as a child elsewhere in the country. They're able to access education of the same um, ability and standard. They're able to access jobs, um, recruitment and a house, indeed wider surroundings as they would do anywhere else in the country. So I'm really keen to influence government agenda around that, but also hear what they've got to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, let's now move on to Ben. Do you want Hello. to give yourself and give us your view yeah. on placemaking with a, a less political hat on? So yes, okay, I'm a past president of the RIBA actually. Um, uh, I'm also um, the president of the London Forum of Community and Civic Societies, which puts me basically from a community uh, perspective in all of this. And I'm, I'm chair of a leading housing and placemaking practice called uh, HTA Design. I'm a commissioner of Historic England, but I am not speaking on behalf of um, Historic England uh, this morning. Um, so uh, I want to characterize the kind of place that I have in mind when uh, we're talking about leveling up and placemaking. I'm thinking of uh, one of the a typical mill town. Um, I'm thinking that it's got a glorious listed uh, town hall. Um, it's surrounded by a conservation area. The conservation area is registered at risk um, and in the register, um, uh, it's noted as having not experienced any positive change uh, recently. Um, there's 30% vacant retail space. Um, almost all the flats over shops uh, are vacant. Um, the uh, general residential vacancy rate in the town um, is double the national average. That's the kind of place that I'm thinking of. It's a beautiful place. It was built by the Victorians. It was a mill town. And out from its lovely centre radiate workers' cottages, um, which you know still serve a very useful purpose and glorious views of the hills um, uh, around it. The things I'd like to address today are the policy framework that's really genuinely going to address um, the fortunes of such a place um, as that. Um, I want to recognise the civic dimension uh, of levelling up, the importance of recognising that it's a, a public good we are seeking here and that therefore public investment um, at local level is necessary um, and that investing public money at scale in both the renovation and improved insulation of social housing and the construction of um, new factory-built, high-quality homes uh, on brownfield sites for such places as that is a way of building back better for our country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, let us now go to um, Ike Eider from Policy Exchange, who has done a lot of work on this area. Give us your thoughts on place. Right. Um, morning, everybody. Um, well, without stating the obvious, places and placemaking are essential. They're essential to 
um, um, livable, healthy cities and to the kind of economic recalibration the government wants to see through leveling up. Um, it's not enough to have wonderful exemplar works of indiv individual architecture. The spaces between them, the streets that link them all together, have to be as good, if not better, than the individual components. So I'm glad the government seems to be aware now, certainly through the white paper, of the primacy of places and how important it is to get that kind of fabric or network of streets and spaces between buildings right. Now, obviously, um, there's a productivity kind of lag um, with, this, with, with this country um, in terms, certainly um, uh, compared to other countries, um, OECD, OECD averages are um, second tier of cities, cities like Birmingham here, um, Manchester, Belfast, don't produce simply as well as other European cities. So there has to be a way in which we improve that. How can placemaking improve that? I think can improve that by if we focus on five key, very quick and simplistic kind of ambitions. The first is, and I would say this because I'm from Policy Exchange and we've promoted it for several years, is we have to build better. We have to build beautiful buildings and beautiful spaces. We can argue all day about whether beauty is subjective or whether it's in the eye of the beholder or whether there are kind of absolute comprehensive ideals which you can attain to beauty. But regardless of that, we have to improve the quality of our architecture and our spaces and our environment. Secondly, we need better planning. I know that's an easy kind of label for an incredibly complex issue, but the planning system needs to be reformed. It needs to be improved. And we've seen in the last few days the government moving towards investment zones, which some might say are kind of a repackaging of enterprise zones. But the principle there is not a bad one. They've worked in the past. We saw what they did in Canary Wharf and other areas. So the idea of maybe streamlining planning and making it quicker, but while retaining beauty and quality, is not necessarily a bad one. So we need to planning is core to this as well. And um, we need better infrastructure. We need to make sure that all the supportive um, um, infrastructure and network for places, um, transport particularly, um, healthcare, um, 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 livable spaces, um, parks, all the kind of infrastructure that needs, that places need in, in order to, um, to, to work, need to be supported. And if necessary, by public investment so that um, private development can be attracted um, minimizing risk, but increasing certainty. Um, fourthly, I think we need, as Ben alluded to, we need to get really clever about adapting existing heritage assets. If you look at some of the most deprived parts of this country, deprived cities, you'd be stunned at the amount of wonderful heritage. It may not be in a wonderful condition, but the assets are there. The tools of rebirth are there, but we need to find a strategy whereby those buildings can be regenerated and can play a role in the kind of rebirth and regeneration of these places we like to see. And finally, very importantly, as far as I'm concerned, I think we need to, the way to, to make um, placemaking increase productivity is to ensure that whatever's done is done as much as possible with democratic consent. I think that's really important. I think the democratic consent angle is what potentially is going to make the investment zones make or break. If people think these things are being imposed upon them, they'll react differently to if they feel part of a kind of process. So some methodology needs to be found whereby people in areas don't feel as if things are being done to them, but they're being part of it. And just find the democratic, democratic consent idea is really important because you're not going to get placemaking or good places without a sense of civic and local pride. And you don't get pride if people don't like places the, um, places where they live or what's been done to them, or if they don't feel that they've, they've been part of the process. So pride is key. And I think democratic consent is a kind of key way of getting to that level of pride and involvement. Thank you very much, Ike. There you are. Five-point ready-made plan. There you are getting clapped as well. Um, 
Jonathan, do you want to take us off next? Um, and obviously, you do a lot of work in the North England as well, and I've been mm-hmm. thinking us through regeneration and levelling up. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, hi, everybody. So I'm Jonathan Moore of ACOM, um, the regional director for ACOM in the North of England. Um, ACOM is one of the largest infrastructure companies, professional services companies in the world, has, and delivered some extraordinary projects in the past, London 2012, amongst more notable ones. The, the focus I have on the levelling up agenda is actually about the integration of all of these areas that need to come together at the right time to allow the impact of levelling up to happen quickly. There are many initiatives, and we've heard all those this morning, and they're all quite right in terms of the focus on the human, the physical, the infrastructure, all that's absolutely right. Without an integrator leading the delivery of these infrastructure areas, these things won't happen at pace, won't happen at scale, won't happen with a good investment model behind them. And, and you know, the way those successful economies have moved forward, like Greater Manchester, have done that by having a very joined up approach to the delivery of levelling up. They've integrated rail, they've integrated transit systems, they've integrated local area um, conurbation discussions. And ACOM, who've got a very clear uh, grasp and leadership of integrated rail, transit, building adaption, building design, delivery, are very well placed to bring this forward very quickly. Our ask of government is to be very clear and very committed to this, give us a long-term plan, we know that many of the rail companies would invest longer. They had longer operating agreements because they need to have a return on investment. So we need clarity from government on where they're going to invest, what they're going to invest in, how they're going to invest, and be very clear about the method and engagement of local communities. Uh, at ACOM, we do this very successfully around the world, and we've done it very successfully in the UK context as well, and we're in a good position to move these things forward. So I'm very encouraged by the clarity of thought and the commitment to levelling up, and uh, you know we, we stand very well and ready to commit to that. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Michael Gove, um, you obviously will have some great thoughts on this from your time as levelling up agenda. Um, when you looked at the white paper and what you did, how did your theory of place fit into that and what is place making for you? Well, uh, all the contributors on the panel have uh, emphasised the importance of not relying on one single tool in order to transform a community and to ensure the places that have been overlooked and undervalued in the past can succeed. Um, And uh, in the levelling up white paper, uh, we talked about what we called a Medici model. And I recognise that this may not be perhaps the most uh, user-friendly phrase. It may be that in uh, in the high streets in Tunstall and Burslem, talking about a Medici model will make people think about uh, birthday cards rather than anything else. Um, But what we were seeking to do was to stress Um, uh, uh, as Abby was talking about, um, the importance of bringing together different types of capital, different types of investment, um, and different types of um, actor in order to ensure that you can successfully make a place which is already attractive to its residents, attractive for investment as well, and where you can take that latent sense of civic pride and turn it into something transformative. Um, And again, if we take um, Stoke-on-Trent, if we take the six towns as a model, it has many of the ingredients that we need. It has, uh, as Abby pointed out, uh, a strong sense of civic identity. It has a global reputation because of its ceramics industry. It has some beautiful historic architecture. It has uh, a significant new employer um, in Bet365. It has a a, a football club, um, which, uh, uh, while not currently in the premiership, 
do. Well, it has Stoke and Port Vale, you're telling me, absolutely. Um, but it has in Stoke City Football Club um, with a great tradition in Port Vale, a football club with a nice ground. Um, and uh, it, it, it also has enterprising and attractive um, uh, citizens. Uh, but there are one or two areas where um, more requires to be done. Some of the government agencies which are responsible for investment in Stoke haven't been sufficiently well coordinated. That is a factor across the country where you can sometimes have uh, organisations from those responsible for our railways to those responsible for our highways to those responsible for urban regeneration not integrating successfully. And that is why, as Abby quite rightly points out, a strong civic leader with the power to convene and knock heads together is absolutely vital. Um, another challenge for Stoke is that schools have been too poor for too long. Um, and again, a particular responsibility on central government is making sure that strong civic leadership is able to challenge underperformance in schools as well. If we broaden the debate out beyond just some of the changes that uh, will make Stoke sing, it's also the case that wherever we look, whether it's Stoke, Burnley, Blackpool, Grimsby, as well as uh, uh, great architecture, attractive buildings, scope for investment and development in the future, cultural investment, which is key, sporting uh, centres of loyalty and focus, which are important. There are two or three other things which I would briefly mention. One is the importance of green spaces. Again, it's been em emphasised um, um, across this panel. The built environment, but also the natural environment need to be integrated in such a way as to make sure that uh, people have places to work, rest and play and safe places in which families can relax. And that takes me to the second thing, which is safer streets. And a critical component of levelling up is making sure that you have uh, that sense 24 hours a day uh, that people can enjoy the public realm. And that, again, is why uh, the work that Suella and others have been doing to refocus the efforts of police on public order, first and foremost, are so important. And then the final thing that I would say, and this is perhaps one of the most difficult, is um, communities like Stoke uh, have more than one high street. Um, and it, it is uh, tough for the principal high street in towns anyway, commercially, for the reasons that we've just heard, to uh, uh, keep themselves lively and attractive and places where people want to go when we have a, a, a hollowing out of the retail sector. But it's even tougher when you're thinking not just about Stoke-on-Trent as a town centre, but also Tunstall, Burslem and the other towns. And a critical part of that is making sure that you have uh, the tools to ensure that landlords if properties are lying empty for too long, are, if necessary, compelled to rent them out, either to new enterprises or to new social enterprises. And giving local people the tools to do that means that startup companies, but also the civic organizations that could play such an important part in leveling up, uh, uh, have the chance to flourish. So I know that what I mentioned is something of a list, but uh, if you open a recipe book, uh, uh, the ingredients will be there in a list. The art is making sure that you bring them all together at the right time, at the right temperature. Um, and that is what great civic leaders like Abby should be empowered to do. Thank you very much, Michael. Now, I'm just going to use Chair's prerogative here to try and do an artful question to take the topic of this onto matter de jour. Now, of course, now the 45p tax rate has been scrapped. That's an extra £2 billion that could go into placemaking and levelling up. Is that what you would like to see? Well, I think that uh, uh, it's already the case that, uh, as uh, we've discussed, Liz and Simon Clark have made it clear that what they want to do is to put extra energy behind levelling up. Some of that is going to be through enterprise zones, which offer um, a chance for, um, and democratic consent is an important part of this, but they, they offer the chance for local communities to embrace uh, faster planning um, and uh, uh, tax breaks in order to encourage the sort of investment that we want to see supercharged. I think that is a very good thing. Um, I think it's also the case, though, and, and I, uh, 
I, I think it's important to look beyond the uh, the simple arithmetic that you quite rightly home in on. So I think it's important to recognise local government continues to need to be funded uh, 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 appropriately. During the austerity period of uh, 2010 to 2014-15, one of the areas that took the biggest hit was uh, local government expenditure. 70% cut in the central government funding between 2010 and 2020, I think. And, we, and I can uh, understand both why that was done, but it's also important that we... As Simon, when he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, did ensure that local government gets the necessary additional resource that it requires. And part of that is helping not just to uh, get central government support for local government, it's also helping to broaden the tax base. And I think that Liz and her team are looking in the whole realm of business taxes and other areas uh, at ways in which we can ensure that uh, communities that haven't necessarily had that broad and deep tax base can do so. So what about business rates then? Because that's one area I think if you went to the, the, all the places we've been talking about on this panel, people would love to see business rates cut to help those high streets and to encourage investment. But that's a very important ex- um, line for the exchequer. Yes, it is. And I think that there is scope to uh, reform business rates. And again, uh, Ben Houchin, another levelling up hero, has made it clear that that is the the logical direction in which local government uh, reform should go. Um, but as well as reform, you also, as you quite rightly need, uh, point out, need to think about uh, uh, the rate at which things are levied. And of course, the Treasury and the Leveling Up Department, I think, are looking at the way in which business rates operate, um, with a particular emphasis on making sure that um, any revaluation that occurs is pro-enterprise. Then last question, we'll go back to the rest of the panel as well. Everyone here has been talking about planning and mm. reform here. Yep. Now, um, when Liz Truss became Prime Minister, she announced that planning reform was going to be returned to. And of course, when you were levelling up Secretary, this was something the department dealt with, really struggled to get in your head, where you had a big backlash from Conservative MPs in the south of England. The fact is, if you want to make better places elsewhere in England, doesn't that require taking a hit for the south and building on some more of the green and pleasant land to help places like Stoke? Um, I think one should over. I mean, again, I think one should oversimplify. There are two things. One, uh, in order to ensure that you get the housing and indeed the other economic development that you need um, uh, in uh, cities like Stoke and elsewhere, uh, then you need to have the government playing a part. Um, and it is the role of Homes England to, uh, first of all, make sure, you know, w- when you have urban redevelopment, you will often have a patchwork of small sites. You need to bring them together and you will often need work to remediate the land because of the industrial uh, uh, consequences uh, for the environment of the previous use. So Historic England has a critical role, not Historic England, Historic England also has a critical role to play. Uh, Homes England has a critical role to play in bringing that together. And then you need the private sector to bring that investment. King's Cross, for example, brilliant example of that. And, and what is happening in uh, Manchester now and what has happened in Birmingham show what you can achieve. We need to make sure that in our other cities and towns that happens. But with respect to uh, planning reform elsewhere, um, I think that there are five things that need to be uh, done and um, policy exchanges work has touched on all of these. The first thing is you need to build beautiful. So beauty is a critical part of it. Again, beauty will, you know, depend on the eye of the beholder. But one thing I would just briefly say is that Poundbury and Nansled and two of the developments that uh, our king was responsible for when he was Prince of Wales and in charge of the Duchy of Cornwall may not necessarily be to everyone's tastes. However, undeniably aesthetically attractive and... More to the point, uh, if you buy a house in Poundbury, it will cost more. It will have a higher price, greater value than homes in Dorchester of equivalent square footage. Um, it is the case that you have a new development that is more attractive, literally more attractive and financially more attractive. The other great thing about Poundbury and Nansledden is that as you uh, walk around both communities and they are walkable, you can't tell the difference between the homes for social rent and uh, uh, homes that people own. So they are organic communities. 
It is a a, a great initiative um, that uh, uh, the Prince of Wales led. So when it comes to beauty and architecture, my motto is God save the king. Um, but we also need <laughs> we also need uh, to make sure that there is adequate infrastructure there. Um, when we're talking about planning reform, our infrastructure levy, which I think Simon is going to take forward, will help ensure more money for local government for the public services they need. You also need exactly, as Policy Exchange have argued for, a democratic role in that. Um, and then you also need, again, as Policy Exchange has argued, to look at the environmental externalities and make sure that you have policies, again, policy exchange policies like uh, environmental and biodiversity net gain alongside. Final thing is you need to have a sense of neighborhood. Um, it's important when you're thinking about additional planning developments that you don't simply plonk new identical housing estates on already existing communities. They need to feel, as Poundbury does, like a proper neighborhood. If you add up those things, B, beauty, I, infrastructure, D, democracy, E, environment, N, neighborhood, you come up with an acronym which is Biden. This may be the only time that I will endorse Biden <laughs> on a public platform, uh, but um, as well as being pro-King, in this respect, I'm pro-Biden as well. Well, there you are. That's a real scoop for you. Now, I just want to come back to some other people on the panel as well. Abby, you talked here about provision of public services in terms of, I think, um, health you mentioned as well. And this is obviously a big issue with it with regards um, to the levelling up agenda that a lot of these places, Michael mentioned the central government funding cuts, which has really affected some of the poorest parts of the country. But it's a very long-term issue to try and improve this stuff. You can't just throw money and get instant results. And I think there is one concern that, you know, obviously... Michael's left the levelling up department. We've got a different direction of this government. There's not enough focus on really improving the outcome of public services. How can you deal with that when you're a local council with the chops and changes of Whitehall? I think really it's about resetting the debate, isn't it, in terms of what um, certainly local government provides. So we provide over 700 services as a unitary authority, um, everything from libraries right the way through to repairing roads. We look after children, older people, public health, a whole variety of things. Um, and the reality is, yes, absolutely. When I'm knocking on doors in Stoke-on-Trent, people are asking me about when their roads are going to be fixed, when the grass is going to be cut and things like that. Nobody ever asks me about the thousand children in care that we have today in Stoke-on-Trent or indeed the incredibly high levels of um, adults who are in um, care homes when actually they probably ought to be at home be having been supported to live independently. But I think that that's really easy to overlook because they aren't the things that are being raised, but, but they are arguably the most important things that we do um, as local government. So I think it is really important that when we have discussions around um, local government finance, that it is about those things. Today, over 60% of my budget is being spent on social care for adults mm. and children, and the remainder is being spent on the things that actually I've spent all of this morning talking about in a variety of different forms. And we have to look at those things in the round. Um, and it is, as Michael has alluded to, a reflection of all of those things. Our prospectus that we issued um, early yes last year picks up on four things that we believe would improve things in Stoke-on-Trent. Transport within the city, economic development, education and skills and health and productivity. Um, and for me, we have to achieve on all four of those to ensure that a child today in Stoke-on-Trent is able to enjoy the same quality of life growing up as children elsewhere. Now, Ben, I want to, you mentioned here about sort of the beauty in some of these places, the natural beauty. And I think you talked about the mill, the mill towns built by the Victorians. And of course, I wouldn't be doing that without mentioning that I've written a book on this topic, uh, which is available in paperback in all good WH <laughs> ships now, Broken Heartlands. And one of the, um, and when you said that, it reminded me a lot of Burnley in Lancashire, which was a place that has got some stunning architecture, really stunning architecture. And they struggled to know what to do with um, the old chimneys, for example, from the cotton mills, because there's about 50 of them. When you arrive into Burnley, they pepper 
pepper the skyline. Some people said, well, let's get rid of them. They're the past. They don't actually serve any use. Other people said, well, actually, they add to the character and the innate sense of place to what Bernie is. How do you get that balance between something of the past, but it actually has no form for the future? Because a lot of these towns that need better placemaking struggle with this. Okay. Um, first of all, let me say that um, it's absolutely clear, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on the same panel as him, that, you know, Michael Gove gets it. Um, and it's a great shame, actually, that, that um, Michael, you were cut off on your prime just as you were going to get going, because I, I'm not at all sure that the current uh, suite of policies is going to do the job that you want to see getting done. Um, somebody said in a town like... Uh, uh, was, did you mention Burnley? Um, uh, a local councillor said to me uh, quite recently, um, the problem here is that we need to make our town centre a destination for the people of this town, and it's not. Um, what we've been doing over the last years, decades, um, is creating destinations for people who live in such places that are out of town, that are miles away, where you have to go by car uh, to reach them. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the central point here. Um, you know, is that we, we, we have a new crisis. I mean, I really think it's a desperate situation for places like this. Um, that they are horribly empty. Um, mm. the streets are occupied by rough sleepers, uh, and petty crime. People don't go there. And yet, as I say, they have intrinsic, inherent, great beauty. Um, and most important of all, um, they're contributing not one jot, um, to the climate crisis. They are filled with embodied carbon. We need, as a country, to occupy every square foot uh, of um, pre-existing space of, uh, of, or existing built footprint as a fundamental part of dealing with the climate crisis. So what I'm saying about all of that, to answer your question, um, you know, is that local authorities need the resource. And, and Michael Gove um, mentioned this, but I know, you know there are no enforcement officers, there are no... Um, uh, um, conservation officers. There are no town centre managers in many of the places of which I speak. And if they're going to deliver um, a response, which, you know, must have the green and blue networks that we're hearing about, it must have the open spaces, it must have means by which the people who live in these terraces of small houses that I'm talking about can actually reach the town centre, mm. because generally speaking, they're cut off by road schemes, which in many cases are not under the control of that local authority. Mm. There's a lot to do it's an exercise in civic leadership and urban design that's required. And most small places of the kind that I'm talking about don't have the resource. And I think the rise of out of town sort of um, shopping centres has played a big part of this in a lot of these towns that, you know, if you think of concert in County Durham, the town centre is very much struggling, as you would say. But you go outside and there's a massive Asda and shops that you can drive in and enjoy that sort of thing. Um, I just want to pick you up on um, your point here about um, the democratic consent. Now, one thing that the new trust government has been getting into is fracking, for example, by saying that we're going to go ahead with fracking if local people want it. And I'm willing to put a bet with every single person in this room that there will be no fracking and um, because no one's going to say, yes, I would absolutely love to have fracking at mine next door. So isn't the problem a democratic consent that actually if you're trying to take decisions on a national or even a regional level, it just gets more and more micro and nothing ever actually gets done? Yes, basically. <laughs> you have encapsulated the problem. And there is very often, thank you, Ben, there's very often a, a contradiction between um, national um, need 
and local benefits. And there's many examples of that. We talked about transport in the last session. I mean, HS2 is a wonderful example of that. Regardless of what you think about HS2, you, you can table an argument for its national purpose, but if you live in a village that's going to have to be spit into you by the railway, then you don't see much of a local benefit to that. So there has to be a way of squaring the two. Now, traditionally, the way of squaring the two would be by going through democratic processes, getting encouraging, coercing people to agree, if you like, with this thing happening to them. But I think we have to get much more intelligent about how we deal with public consultation and about how we how we deal with um, consulting the public about these big measures. Because I, I understand the difficulty, I understand the challenge. You can get, it's very hard to get everybody to agree on everything. And it's unrealistic to expect that you can only have projects go ahead if everybody agrees with them. But it's such a fundamental, fundamentally important part of urban development, I feel, getting people to have a kind of emotional investment or buying into it, that we have to find a strategy to do it. I'm not sure what the strategy is. I'm sure there are people far more adept than me in government that are working out what strategy should be. I mean, one way of it could be, I'm not saying this is the absolute outcome, but it's something that policy exchanges looked at, is possibly polling. Um, not using polling to determine planning applications, I'm not saying that, but polling so that you can at least gauge what people feel about what's being done to their environment. Just ask them the question, asking people questions just makes them feel empowered, whether you listen to the answer or not. But maybe, maybe that might be one kind of way in terms of trying to get this local support for controversial, complicated schemes through. I, mean, I don't know the answer, but I think it's a very important challenge. You came very close to mentioning the dreaded word of citizens' assemblies, which I believe is Gordon Brown's solution for every problem the country faces. I noticed you didn't. Um, and then finally, Jonathan, before we throw this out to questions from the audience, you talked about delivery and getting stuff done very quickly. And, you know, see, Michael, you and levelling up for nine months. Um, you did the white paper. But in terms of trying to get levelling up done, this government's sort of three years old. And there is a bit of a sense across the country that people can't feel it. They can't see it. And we've got a, a new levelling up sector who's talked about 100 priority infrastructure projects. And as far as I can see, that's going a list and just saying, right, well, we want these things done. But there's not really much sense inside government about how you get these things delivered what's your answer to that and what is the problem is it whitehall inertia is it ministers is it funding is it yourselves you've not got capacity to help get these things through yeah no we've certainly got capacity to get things through i think like like most plans and uh, michael made the point about you have a list of ingredients you bring them together and you get the outcome you're trying to achieve the balance of ingredients timing and, and um, decision making does lead you to deliver at scale at pace. What I would say to governments is that the way they raise finance for public sector funding is not very joined up. So you could get a rail company looking at their rail infrastructure um, investment. Uh, clearly, technically, it's going to be safe and healthy and all this sort of thing. And you'll find that the regeneration teams that work within the same rail company or operating company don't talk to each other. So the opportunity to integrate mm. housing regeneration with low carbon travel, as Greater Manchester have done and all of the stations around Greater Manchester, they're now looking at air rights development over these stations by bringing together partners of the GM, the Metro, uh, Metro Mayor and, and, and the local rail company. So 
well, the first point that the, the public sector needs to do is to stop and think about the alignment mm. of the process. Mm. Uh, Michael's made the point about some, some investment zones, speed up planning, policy making, process decision making. That's the sort of thing that should be done at an operational scale to allow the funding process to come forward quickly. Also, look at the means of funding it. I work with Homes England through ACON quite often. They can get initial funding to do brownfield redevelopment, but the actual major funding required to do the preparatory work to move that forward isn't aligned to the process. Mm. So it's another gap while you wait for the next bit of funding. Local authorities don't have the money to fund upfront some of the work they need to do to get the funding in place justified for the business case. So it's a it's a sort of process that's slightly out of step mm. and it just slows the whole thing up. When you take that on a scale and you take that up to a portfolio level, you do get problematic delivery issues. And that point I made about the, the clarity, the guarantees, the commitment from government through local authority and devolved mayorships, whatever it might be, needs to be there and needs to be held together. And then there needs to be a feedback loop that allows things to change if we need to move quicker. So the answer is that there's an alignment and process um, consolidation requirement needed. Um, and it's a big challenge because, you know, government departments are, are many, many and varied mm. and, 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 you know, they're not integrated particularly well. But we should have an integrated plan, a delivery plan with a delivery solution with a fully costed business case. Then we can move much quicker. So that's the issue that needs to be brought forward. Great. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you very much. And as we all can tell, I've been Michael Gove and this is Sebastian Payne here. Um, but all I can say is thank you so much to our panel, um, to Abby Brown, to Jonathan Moore, to um, Ike Iger and to Ben Derbyshire. Thank you all for coming and joining this event. I hope you feel very inspired about beauty and places and how to make them all better. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please rate us, leave a review and share it with your friends and colleagues. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.